the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. As we do every third hour on Tuesday, we check in with uh, Lewis and Hugh Hallman. Hugh Hallman, former mayor of Tempe. Lewis Hallman is the managing uh, director of Insight Analytics. And Hugh has been uh, on research travel for the last, uh, what, two weeks. He'll be back with us probably next week, I would imagine. Yep. He gets back this evening. He was away in uh, sunny Kazakhstan. Ah. Seeing how they handle COVID. Exactly. Among, exactly. And also doing some other work. And uh, other things. Yeah. Uh, Lewis is one of my favorite um, young thinkers. We have now quite a, quite a team of uh, – how old are you, Lewis? I'm 28. Of under 30s who are just brilliant. And Lewis heads that. Daniel Galerner, Lewis Hallman, all great. Uh, Ariel who we had on earlier in the show. Lewis, uh, you are in the um, – you are in the uh, 65% of the population that has no memory of gas lines in this country. Right. That is to say, if you're over 50, you could remember them. If you're under 50, We're talking about the not. OPEC uh, uh, in yeah. the 70s? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And uh, as I understand, about 35% of the population is 50 or older. So the majority of America does not have a memory of gas lines sure. other than history books or, or anecdote. Here we are again. Um, I can tell you that this is the sign of a bad and sick country that has a problem with gas lines uh, and gas shortages. And it, it's uh, – I actually can talk all day It, it about is preventable and I want you to talk a little bit about it for part of the day. OK. <laughs> okay. I always so, get nervous when Lewis says I can talk all day about – because you know what? He can. <laughs> so the U.S. is in a really interesting position energy-wise, and it's one that has transformed drastically over the last decade or so. And the real big impetus behind all of this has been fracking. So in about 2012, um, the U.S. was grossly incapable of meeting its uh, domestic energy demand. We were very dependent, as we had always been, on imports of oil, predominantly Middle Eastern crude but with the expansion of uh, fracking in the shale fields of Texas and North Dakota and other places, we have driven the cost down of oil to about 40 to $50 a barrel break even. And this has then created our own domestic supply that is then unremovable by the rest of the world. And so we are not currently technically energy independent because some of the more expensive wells – sort of went offline in the beginning of the COVID crisis. But that combined with the available stock of infrastructure, the U.S. is effectively energy independent. Now, this is not shared by almost the entire rest of the world. There are really only a handful of countries that can comfortably say that they're energy independent. Um, and so while these gas lines are an issue now, I, I think that the, the really big saving grace about our position is that these are a temporary shock and will go away. Because what we're going to start seeing now, I, I think, is actually a really big deal for the rest of the world, who is still very dependent 
on all of these long-run shipping lanes that oil has to move through and are now increasingly bereft of the U.S. security overwatch that made all of this possible for the last 80 years. And so we live in a world where it is very possible that the U.S. will see a ceiling of about $60 a barrel for crude while the rest of the world, because of increasing global instability, sees a price floor of $150 a barrel or more, just ridiculous prices. And so things are good here relatively, although we are seeing the short-term bump, that there is the potential down the road for a massive decoupling of the global energy system. One of the interesting things that I think came out of this week uh, with regard to the colonial uh, pipeline uh, uh, I guess it's, it's fair to call it a cyber attack, I suppose, right? Ransomware attack. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things to come out of that was the administration's response when asked today whether Colonial will be paying the ransom The and if the federal government has guidance on this. The federal government says, no, we have no guidance on this. This is a private company. And I thought First time a Democrat ever saw first, first time a Democrat ever thought the 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 line between private and public corporations was bright and strong, high and impregnable. Well, this effort, was a first. The demarcation zone is really yeah. how much effort do we have yeah. to expend on your behalf? But it's a hugely not just private company issue. Right. <laughs> this is this is a uh, a, a renunciation, uh, an abdication of federal responsibility uh, when they say, "Oh, it's just a private company." I no, mean, this is about national security. To the degree that they have an, ob- you know, an obligation to defend us, I would say that that's accurate. Right. Okay. Good. To the degree, <laughs> I know we always have that little. I do want to talk about COVID with you, though, um, if we can, uh, Lewis, as well, because I was saying earlier we're in this weird place now. Where a year ago, everything that was said by you and your dad and me and Dennis Prager and Heather McDonald and I, a handful of others, but not much more than a handful. Everything that was said by by we exactly a year ago is bearing out day by day or week by week. Maybe. Right. Even the New York Times has uh, joined us. The New York us. Times. Even they have joined us in reviewing clinical literature and thinking about it critically, which is something – which is a position that they opposed completely for months if you were, by the way, in, in our little camp of uh, critical thinkers, we were, uh, I believe, science deniers, anti-vaxxers, Neanderthals, conspiracy theorists and the like. The president called us Neanderthals. Right. Non-patriotic Neanderthals. Question Ooga booga. patriotism, huh? Ooga booga. Ooga booga. Um, the New York uh, – my, my friend Jim said it'll be interesting to see if this reporter for the New York Times gets fired. Oh, that will be fascinating. That is an interesting question. But let me give you this standout sentence from the New York. It's buried. It's not the main lead in the story. And it's okay. It doesn't have to be. There may be two leads here, but this has to be one of them. Buried into paragraph eight or nine, quote, there is not a single documented COVID infection anywhere in the world from casual outdoor interactions such as walking past someone on a street or eating at a nearby table. Yeah, the operative word in that sentence is documented right? because it would be extraordinarily difficult for that kind of 
I don't know, some kind of molecular contrast. I don't even know how you would do it right. where you somehow tag the germ leaving patient zero and watch it as it floats through the air, enters patient one and infects them. Well, I suppose if you were an extremely isolated or isolatable type person but then and being the outs- only human contact you had was one person outside for a minute or ten Right. I mean, that, that would basically be the only way because yeah. even if you're even if you're, you know, going outdoors and in contact with multiple people, it's then not clear where you're getting it from. But you would be getting it from outside transition, right. transmission. Presumably. If you live totally alone otherwise. Right. Right. That would be the only way to do it. That having been said, that was not the message. Uh, and how that was not the message <laughs> from the government, from the CDC, from the state governments, and from every other Karen in the world who would shame you for, wearing a, for not wearing a mask outdoors. Now we have the question of vaccinated people wearing masks outdoors, which there is guidance on. A vaccine does not allow you to go maskless outdoors, though there is not a single documented COVID infection anywhere in the world from casual outdoor interactions, such as walking past someone on a street or eating at a nearby table. Pre-vaccine would have been a better end to that sentence because that's what they mean. Right. Pre-vaccine. So on that note, you know, I'm really – sort of amazed increasingly at, at what I see as the con of the century that was effectively just perpetrated upon the American people because we had in total about 3.35 million deaths in the United States last year, up from about 2.85 million the year before, an increase of about 510,000 deaths um, or about 15% of the age-adjusted rate. Now, do you know, Seth, when the last time the age-adjusted rate was this high? 2004. We spent $6 trillion, millions of panicked hours, just struggles all up and down the entire country because we returned to the dark, plague-ridden days when the sun was blotted out of 2004. What do you mean? This is fantastic. I want to pick up on this on the other side of the break. But real quickly, age adjusted, what does that mean? Uh, So it's a way of um, taking death data and um, aggregating it along the demographic profile that a country has as it changes over time. So you have a slightly differing percentage of old people at every given year. So adjusted for age so you can have an apples to apples. Correct. He's Lewis Hallman. I'm Seth Liebson, 602. Two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We'll be right back. Come with us May twenty fifth. Me, Andy Biggs, Mike Gallagher. We're bringing in Mike Gallagher to town, and Andy will be back. And we're going to meet with Jens Scottsdale. Uh, crisis at the border. It's uh, an element of everything else that Mike and Andy and I certainly think uh, is but one in the. Uh, in the um, nostrum of uh, progressive uh, causes and means to effectuate those causes. We're going to have a great event. May 25th, uh, Andy Biggs, Mike Gallagher, and myself will have gone to the border the day before. We'll talk all about it and anything else on your mind. Come join us. Go to 960thepatriot.com, 960thepatriot.com for tickets. It'll be so good to see you all again. Lewis Hallman is my in-studio guest, as he always is on Tuesdays this hour. Um, before we return to COVID, and any, uh, and we have a call on gas we'll get to in a second, too. I just have to do this. This is a pet peeve of mine. 
the former president of the United States cannot be on Twitter because he encourages violence when he says things like go to the Capitol and protest peacefully and patriotically. He can't be on Twitter for saying that. Um, Ismail Haniya is the head of an organization called Hamas. He tweeted this morning, the bombing of Tel Aviv and the pipeline between Ashkelon and Eilat is glory to God and God alone. Great. Great. That's Twitter. That's not encouraging violence. The bombing of Tel Aviv is glory to God and God alone. That's your head of Hamas on Twitter. But we can't encourage violence, so we'll silence Donald Trump. Uh, you can comment on that or go back to COVID. Absolutely. Like. So I, I think that one of the the big issues that we have in looking at social media is that there is no real impetus to have a consistent position, right? Because you have to understand that this is not this is not fundamentally, at least for, for many actors in this space, it's not about how do I make the world a better place. It's how do I do what I was going to do otherwise, but also be called noble for doing so. And in the in these cases, you know, you can see that Trump actively voiced oppositional interest to Twitter and social media and thus is a pariah in their eyes. Whereas Hamas is only killing people. They're not hurting Twitter. Why would Twitter care if Hamas is able to say whatever it wants? Absolutely. Absolutely right. Now, it, go but before we go – Plus, we, if, if, if yeah, Twitter did kick Hamas off, that would probably be like a, some sort of colonialist or, or, or aggressive or cultural overreach. You know, it's a, it's a very good point. What will Ilan Omar say if Twitter does kick Hamas off? You know, I, I, I think that uh, – Because they have this Trump problem. I mean, it's a it's what will they say? I, I speculate outrage, yeah. unfounded outrage and lots be, of it. But it'll be odd. There's no rational argument they can make. Right. If Twitter can suspend the former president, they may have seen the light and suddenly become free speech absolutists. Ah, uh-huh, uh-huh, would be uh-huh. the one that I might try if I were a conservative in their being a liberal who was mugged by reality kind of thing. Exactly. I got you. <laughs> we'll go back to COVID in a moment. But first, Steve is in Phoenix. You're on with Lewis Hallman. Steve, hello. Hi, how are you guys? Good, thanks. Um, Lewis, you said, uh, you're talking about gas prices, and you said world gas prices, I believe, could raise, you said raise to $150 a barrel. A few things would have to happen for that scenario to occur, but yes, sorry. (laughs) Okay, so my question is, why wouldn't the U.S. prices rise to hit um, a blended rate, a world blended rate? Why would... The U.S. prices be different than the world prices? It's an excellent question, Steve. Really good. Uh, so the, the big issue is that the U.S. actually does not export oil to the rest of the world. We have a few. There, there are some tiny exceptions to this, but by and large, we actually don't export any of our crude. It is illegal to, as far as I am aware. Um, so so with, with that supply shock, you, you actually then can't have um, the U.S. in its... Uh, great abundance supplying the rest of the world and then bringing its prices down. So the, the rest of the world would have to fend for itself unless that law is changed, which I am extremely skeptical about. But wouldn't the law of supply and demand uh, raise the uh, – wouldn't the oil pro- companies just raise the U.S. price because they can? Well, then they would be sitting on a bunch of oil in the U.S. that they couldn't sell abroad. Right. 
right? Or, or, or you know, and, and then would then have nowhere to go with it. And so you are absolutely right. Your instincts are correct in that, you know, you would expect supply and demand in an unregulated market to have those prices meet. But the big exception to, to these issues of supply and demand are always these uh, market externalities and, and, and um, other forces acting on the market to skew it, tax it, or otherwise cause price floors and ceilings. And this is the kind of effect you see with that governmental policy. Nice. Thank you, Lewis. Uh, go back to what you were saying uh, to us about COVID before the break, if you will, because I know you were. Right. Yeah. So the the big sticking point on it is that we had between 2019 and 2020 an increase in our death rate of about 15%, representing about 510,000 what you might call excess deaths. And so the last time we had a death rate, which is the number of deaths divided by the population, it was equivalent to this, as I said before, was in 2004. And, and this just, the loss of 17 years of 1% decline does not seem to me to be a sufficient reason to utterly up, uproot society and change our entire economic and cultural way of life. So, so you know, that raises an eyebrow. But we've also talked on this show uh, about how America has measured its COVID deaths and that we use the most exacting standard in the world. We use a 60-day standard, which means that if you die within testing positive um, – I would say almost least – I'm sorry. I have, hate to be caught up on it. Almost least exacting standard in the world. We may use the least exact. Uh, uh, you most, count the, the most – The most liberal standard. You count as many – more as possible. Okay, yes. Good so so okay. however, yes, however yes. you want to communicate yeah. that. <laughs> okay. okay. Sorry. Um, so, so they're using a 60-day standard. The next highest is uh, a 28-day standard used by the UK. Now, the UK used to use a 60-day standard, but when they switched over in about August, they did studies at Oxford to figure out what the effect of that would be. And they found, but by changing the standard, it, it depends what kind of regime you're seeing, but you, you see between a 40 and 60 percent decline in aggregate death numbers, at least over the period that they analyzed in that study. And so that makes me wonder then, if we use the same standard as the rest of the world, we go from 340,000 COVID deaths to what? Now, even if we... If we don't assume that that 40 to 60 percent decline from the UK study is accurate, even if we just assume a 25 percent overstatement, well, then that gets us down to 250,000 deaths by COVID and 260,000 excess deaths from other causes, which would imply to me that the cure was worse than the disease and that our response to COVID ended up killing more people and contributing more to the increase in death rates than did the virus itself. Maybe as high as 10,000 by as 10,000 10, souls possibly or so, more. Or more. I mean, I mean on the order of depending on how you count the numbers, hundreds of thousands. And Let's what you come consider- back on that. Because, yeah, that'd be good. Thank you for that, by the way. I'm Seth Liebson. He is Lewis Holman. Our phone number is 602-508-0960. Be right back. Welcome back. <coughs> Excuse me. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Holman is our guest. 602-508-0960. I was chuckling. Uh, there's a story at New York Times. Quote, more than 100 Republicans, including some former elected officials, are preparing to release a letter this week threatening to form a third party if the Republican Party does not make certain changes, according to an organizer of the effort. 
more than 100 Republicans, including some former elected officials. John Gabriel, our good friend, he tweeted, more than 100? Wow. More than 100. I'm sure the GOP is establishment is quaking in its boots. I just looked at the names. I recognized one. Um, Lewis Hallman, I was going to ask you something about excess deaths, but let me do this because it was in the news a great deal today, uh, and it came out of a um, back and forth between uh, Rand Paul and Anthony Fauci, and it had to do with a certain kind of research Fauci either does or doesn't agree with or believe in. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I was unfamiliar with the terminology. Sure. So the uh, I believe the type of research in question is what's called gain-of-function research. So gain-of-function research is actually a fairly broad term, but generally what it refers to is in um, virology taking a, a pathogen, a virus, and then effectively either modifying it while it is currently living with something called CRISPR, which, to make a long story short, is a way to modify the genome of living organisms, or by... Using palindromic repeats. Yes. I know uh, things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know things. <laughs> and then the the uh, alternate way is effectively through serialized breeding, mm -hmm. right? Just successive generations. And what gain-of-function research is trying to do is, is really just what's on the tin to gain functionality in the virus that was previously not, not there. It doesn't need to be a strictly new type of activity. It can just be something like making a virus more transmissible or harder to generate antibodies against or able to be uh, uh, moved across species, for instance, you know, all, all sorts of these. So it's any kind of, of uh, genetic engineering research that tries to, in an evolutionary context, um, change the nature of how viruses work is, is it, some it, kind of game at function. And research. it has a moral qualm to it, right? There's more qualm over using this kind of Well, function. absolutely. Sure. So there's all kinds of potential moral, moral hazard pro uh, problems with it, uh, including some several controversies that were, were raised earlier in the pandemic um, about – whether or not uh, the original COVID strain did indeed escape from a lab where exactly this kind of research was being performed. And the, the ethical constraints are fairly easy to see in, in light of the last year that we've had in that if you are studying virology and trying to figure out what makes viruses more deadly, well, if you make them more deadly and they escape, that is a really, really bad thing. You've created something that would not have happened otherwise and unleashed it upon the world all in the name of preventing it. It's like a Jurassic Park situation. It really is. That's, that's a fabulous right, analogy. The argument between uh, John, the owner of it, the inventor of it, whatever his name was. What was his name? Doctor. Oh, I don't know. The guy with the amber stick. Yeah. Yes, the guy with the amber stick. The argument between him and uh, and uh, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, right? the chaos theorist. Right, the chaos theorist. Uh, Ian Brent, what was his name? Dr. Ian? Ian Malcolm. And he says, you spent so much time thinking about how to do it, you never stopped to ask yourself if you could do it or should right, do it. Absolutely. Right, absolutely. Right, right. That, that argument. All right. Richard is in Phoenix, has a question for Lewis. Hi, Richard. Hi, Lewis. I just didn't know if you knew who, who invented the PCR test. Did you know his name is? <laughs> uh, I do not, no. <laughs> Terry, Terry Mullins. 
and the guy said it was never intended to test for uh, the uh, COVID, and that he called Fauci a fraud. And guess what happened to him? Uh, I, I'm sure he was later. <laughs> silenced or nothing came of it. <laughs> yes, yes. So I just want to let you guys, your listeners know that. And it's just it's part of a uh, kind of a depopulation agenda, but that's as much as I want to say. And then and the cycles, they can spin as many cycles. They can get any number they want by the number of cycles they use. And you won't be able to find this on Google, but you can find it on BitChute by looking up COVID-911. Thanks, Richard. Uh, the, the, there is an elemental problem here, Lewis, which is because of the CDC's, I think, malign handling of everything and Fauci's malign handling of everything, no one knows what to believe anymore. I think that's a fair assessment. And I think the notion of science took a big hit over the last year. And I used this heuristic. Say something about this on the back, on the other side? Sure. Okay. You're going to say something about heuristics? Well, I, I use this heuristic. I never believe someone who's trying to advance their own power. Oh, okay, great. Let's pick up on that when we come back. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. My friend uh, Solar Sandy, she wants to put more of your money into your pocket. If you're thinking about going solar and telling the power companies to uh, take a hike, Solar Sandy's who you want to reach out to. She not only brought integrity back to solar in Arizona, she figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. She wants to put your money back in your pocket and the power of your ability to decide what you want to pay and to whom back in your hands. If you sign up now, she will pay your power bills for one year and your solar panel payments for one year, and you will receive a $1,000 bonus at signing. She'll do appointments in person or by Zoom. Power increases are coming, and if you want to stop giving your money away to the power companies, you want to check out Solar Sandy. To get started, go to AskSolarSandy.com. That's AskSolarSandy.com, and let Sandy do all the work. Uh, Lewis Hallman, my guest here, we were just uh, ahead of the break making the point, or I was, you wanted to comment on it, that Science has taken a hit. Truth has taken a hit um, over the last year and a half. But more importantly, uh, you know, confidence in our institutions and knowing what and who to believe has never probably been at a lower point, I'm guessing. I'm thrilled about this. Okay, good. So the uh, the big reason that I am thrilled about this is that – I think that creative destruction. Well, most of the function that the state currently occupies, I think, is a tremendous overreach. It has, over the twentieth century, expanded itself in unimagin you know unimaginable ways. It has inserted itself into every facet of our lives, and very often does so without benefiting us. Look at the uh, example I made with the death numbers. If my analysis is anywhere close to accurate, it, and we, we're both relatively on the same page here, that the, the cure might have been worse than the disease. But government's job, at least in its own eyes, is not to shield our interests. It's to protect its own power and get itself reelected. And so anytime we have a do-nothing Congress, anytime... DC cannot seem to get its act together and instead of interfering and invading in our lives, elects instead to kick the count down the road. I'm thrilled at this. It's so gridlock. 
I'm very pro-gridlock. I wish we had more of it. I understand the point. And unless we're talking about appropriating something important uh, for a, uh, a needy part of our community, uh, think, consider veterans perhaps, veterans health, let's say, um, I too am uh, much less uh, le- much less unhappy about the idea of gridlock. You don't you don't want a situation where the government is paralyzed from having to do things it needs to. So, for example, we're in a situation where the party, the Democratic Party, has the White House, obviously, in the Senate and the House, but only really by a thread. And and I think they know they probably only have it until the next uh, election in 2022. I think they know that. I, I tend to agree. I yeah. think that the parties are both in serious transition right mm-hmm. now and the, the, the makeup will not be anything like it was in 2016. The, uh, right. I think you're right. And the difference in the storyline uh, a little, uh, I, I think, is, is going to be this from the mainstream. Uh, the Democratic Party's uh, problems, if they have problems, are problems of implementation of policy. The Republican Party has problems, and it's one of ideology. Let me give you a for instance. There is more news today about, and has been really, uh, for two days. There's been more news today and, and, and yesterday about Liz Cheney and her problems with the GOP or the GOP's problems with Liz Cheney than there has been news about the gas shortage and gas line and colonial uh, and colonial pipeline problems. And that's because the major news media, I think, wants to hide a policy or series of public policy problems that now are harming the would otherwise harm the administration while it elevates the importance of this internal fight in the Republican Party that I don't think is that big of a deal at the end of the day, I think. So I, I see this really reflecting several trends at the same time. I broadly agree with what you said, but I also think that people generally are less political than you and I mm-hmm. and are more likely to tag on to human interest stories pertaining to one famous person than they are to read something technical about a place that they don't know and have never been to. Um, So I I think that there's reasons for that sort of discrepancy in coverage. But if I I can return to the point I was making about um, why I like gridlock, though, I I think that'll add something. Because one of the things that we've observed is is the, the state has enmeshed itself in every aspect of our day-to-day lives is the diminishment of the parallel institutions that used to serve in those places. Churches, social clubs, all of the actual fiber that held our community together 120 years ago, everything has collapsed with the sole exception of government. And again, you know, the, the reason that we have this state of affairs is not because the government is terribly concerned about consistency or losing its political capital, but because there is no functional alternative left. We have so much of our lives, so much of our populace, so dependent on government that even when we're all aware that we're being lied to, that trust in the media is is lowest level it's ever been and trust in Congress is lower than it's ever been, we cannot get away from these people because, well— they pay unemployment, they pay welfare, housing subsidies, child care subsidies, food stamps, all of the things that might have been dealt with through the support of one's local community 
have instead been replaced by this monolithic entity that then actually uh, actively disincentivizes us from trying to form the bonds that might replace it. It's a tremendous point, and that there is an inverse relationship between the popularity of the entity and the strength of the entity, right? Absolutely. Uh, and its effect on on the populace um, is um, is uh, what is, is saltation the right word? It's 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 a it's such a dramatic disconnect. But your point is huge, and I'm going to ask you to close on that point, which is. In, in some, the greater the government, the smaller the individual, but also the smaller every civilizing institution that we rely on as auxiliaries to the family household, right? Exactly right. Um, let me have you say a few words on that as we conclude, and we will conclude. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. As um, as I uh, can't say enough, it's a privilege to have Lewis Hallman, and anyone who listens to him understands why, with us every Tuesday. Some closing thoughts on your last point, Lewis. Absolutely. So we were talking about the fact that as the 20th century has progressed, we have seen the influence of the state increase and swallow up other organization, uh, other aspects of life that would have been socializing and, and, and useful institutions. And as that has happened, we also then see as the state comes to dominate political life and economic life more and more, it has l- fewer and fewer uh, incentives to maintain, uh, shall we say, a reasonable relationship with its constituents. It doesn't it, it doesn't have to make you like it if it uh, if there's no other alternative. And so my question is, I guess, how do we find truth in a world where it's very difficult to trust our institutions? It's very difficult to trust uh, uh, anyone's political opinions, really. And there's an idea, there's a scientific concept called a nomological network which is basically a fancy word that means law-like in Greek or, or a network of laws. And what a nomological network is, is it's basically it's a way of studying something where what you want to do is if you're asking a question, you ask it and then you look for as many different kinds of sources as you can and different kinds of analysis. So where one does a quantitative analysis, you might want a qualitative analysis in the other one. And so you can bind together different sources and use them very carefully to construct a reasonable opinion. Reason, Reasonableness. Words in short, uh, short supply right now in great demand. <clears throat> we'll do more of it tomorrow. Lewis Holman, thank you for your time. Thank you for your brain. Always a delight, Seth. You bet. Until tomorrow, for me, it is. Uh, until tomorrow. God bless you all. Class dismissed.